0: Well, thank you, Cam and Carrie, for reading the Word of the Lord to us this morning. The Ten Commandments tell us what God commands us to do, but also it tells us what, what God's plan for us is, right? All of those things, you could read them two ways. You could read them, Thou shalt not, I mean, I'm speaking in Old English, how I memorized them when I was a kid. Thou shalt not is a command, but it also is a picture of your future. If you obey God, if you listen to Him, I uh, wouldn't it be exciting to say these things are not going to be a part of my life as I go forward, and uh, that's incredible that we have a written record of God's plan for us and his expectations of us. That's wild. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. How are yeah, thank you. Uh, quick survey. How many of you have already eaten some turkey with your family? All right, great. How many of you still hope to eat some turkey with your family? How many of you are just hoping not to be a turkey with your family? (laughs) Okay, some honest ones. That's great. Well, hey, we're excited to be together on Thanksgiving and glad that you've joined us, whether you're joining us here in-house or you're joining us online. We're excited that you've uh, invited us into your family gathering or whatever gathering that you're having or wherever you're watching uh, today. I want to quickly do a review of the last three weeks And if you're just visiting with us today, then uh, this will be helpful to let you know that we've been on a journey. We are calling "believe." We're looking at the most common beliefs that Christians have, that and the actions that come out of them, and the virtues that begin to appear in their life if these beliefs and actions turn into. So, the last three weeks, we were asking. Every week, we ask a question. In the very first week, we asked this question: Who is God? And um, the answer, or the belief statement that goes with that, um, maybe you just want to read it with me. How about let's read it together? I believe the God of the Bible is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a scripture that goes with that, Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it's not just something to believe, but it's something to experience. All of this interaction with God. Then the second week we ask the question, does God care about me? And then if you read the statement with me together, this is the response. I believe God is involved in and cares about my daily life. Here's a verse. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121, 1-2. And so we learned about that, that God is not just God with a capital G, but he's also a personal God. He wants to interact with you and me. The third week we asked, how do I have a relationship with God? And let's read the answer together. I believe a person comes into right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, this week, uh, we're going to take our next step in this believe journey. But in order to do that, I want to do a fun quiz with you. And uh, you'll see that all the questions are about the same thing. So normally, we do a survey to find out what you believe. Today, we're just going to do something a little different and have a, a quiz, which is also a contest. So if you want to go to Kahoot, Kahoot, K. A H O O T dot I-T, then you can play along. Whether you're watching at home or whether you're here in the building uh, with us, you can play along. So go to kahoot.it, and the number for our game is 839 So that number again is 8... Oh, I said it wrong. 893. Here's the right way. 893 Eight five four once once more to make sure you get it the right way. Eight nine three four eight five four. And if you put that into the website or into your Kahoot app, then you will be logged in. And it seems like we've already got lots and lots of people already logging in. That's pretty exciting. So you'll, I'll tell you how to win this. If you get the answers right and you answer quick, those are the two ways to win. Getting them right gets you most of the points, but about half of the points are really for being quick, and so if you're quick and smart, uh, you can actually win this today, and so this will be a fun thing. And all the questions are about the fourth week of our belief series, which centers in on the topic of the Bible. So I think we've probably got enough names in there to get started. Hopefully you've been able to log in wherever you are, so let's get started. Here we go. So our first question is, there are 66 books in the Bible. How many are in the Old Testament? How many are in the Old Testament, and how many are from the New Testament? So different options. Uh, the red triangle is 44 Old Testament books and 22 New Testament books. Then the blue diamond is 33 Old Testament and 33 New Testament. And then the yellow triangle is 46 Old Testament and 20 New Testament. And you guys have answered already. I didn't even get to all the answers. But look at you guys. And most of you picked the green square, which was 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. And that is the right answer. So let's see who got it right and who got it quickest. I'm very curious to see who's going to be at the top of our leaderboard. Fearless Duck. Congratulations, fearless. Doc, after one question, you're our leader and everyone will be chasing you. I hope you truly are fearless because everyone's gunning for you. All right, second question. Let's go. Second question. Here we go. Roughly how many years did it take for all of the Bible books to be written? Over what space of time? So the red triangle is 70, the blue diamond is 400, the yellow circle is 1,500, and the green square is 6,000. Roughly how long did it take to write all of those 66 books that we find in our modern day bible? And the most popular answer was 1500 and it happens to be the right answer as well. So let's see if Fearless Duck is still on top. Oh, I think we've got a new leader, Soaring Pelican. Oh man, it's all for the this game is going to the birds. Okay. <laughs> let's go to the next one. Let's see what we got next. Here we go. Approximately how many writers participated in writing the content of the Bible? 12, 40, 120, 500. 12 is the red triangle, 40 is the blue diamond, the yellow circle is 120, and the green square is 500. How many writers participated in writing the content of the Bible? Well, the most popular answer is 40, and it does happen to be the right answer. Let's see if the birds are still winning this game. Oh, now we got Jolly Griffin. Jolly Griffin. Is Jolly Griffin in the house? Oh, I'm not seeing any hands up. No one wants to admit It must be someone online. Congratulations, Jolly Griffin. You're our new leader. Let's do the next question. Who wrote more of the content of the New Testament? You have Dr. and Historian Luke. Fisherman turned spokesman, Peter. Persecutor turned missionary, Paul. And only non-martyr disciple, John. So those are our four options. Red triangle was Luke. Blue, oh, there we go. Luke is the right answer, but most people pick Paul. Well, we just knew that was going to happen because that's commonly believed that Paul, he wrote the most individual uh, Entries or books in the New Testament, but Luke actually wrote more words more content And so that's the right answer. So lots of people maybe have dropped from the top of the leaderboard. Let's see what happened here Oh, we've got a change here. The soaring pelican is back on top and uh, Followed by jolly griffin decisive rabbit elated bear and creative possum So those those group are the our top five. Let's keep going. We've got just a couple more questions how many times has uVersions Bible app been downloaded? It's the most popular Bible app in the world. So 200,000, 28 million, 440 million, 1.3 billion. How many times has uversions Bible app been downloaded? Here we go. Well... Uh, The most popular answer was 1.3 billion, but the right answer is 440 million times. So, let's see who... Oh! Soaring pelican is still on the top, and they're on fire, it says by the icon. So that's great. Jolly griffin, decisive rabbit, eager alpaca, and quick kitten. These are the ones fighting hard for the final question. Whoever gets this is going to be our our winner. Can anyone unseat the soaring pelican? Let's see. All right. In the NIV, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for things. Which one of these four is not one of the things is listed it's useful for? So teaching, coaching, training, rebuking, Three of those are in the verse, one of them is not. Which one of them is not in the verse? Teaching, coaching. Wow, coaching was the one most likely picked. It's also the right answer, so we'll see who ends up with the win here. And bronze medal goes to Decisive Rabbit. And silver goes to Jolly Griffin. And gold goes to... Soaring Pelican. Alright. Is soaring pelican in the house? Did I already ask this? No, they're playing from home, I think. Alright. Good for you. Well, that last bit about the verse is our key verse for the week. So let's just read it. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. And training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, no coaching listed in there, but actually, a lot of what's in here, you almost could say, is coaching. Do you want to be equipped for every good work? I know I do. In my walk with God, I want to be equipped, and it's telling us exactly what we need for that. We need the Bible. So, this week's question and belief statement are these How do I know God? And his will for my life. How do I know God? And how do I know his will for my life? Well, he's revealed it. Now, there's different ways God's revealed himself. I mean, he's revealed himself through creation. There's a revelation that happens through our conscience that tells us about right and wrong. But the most specific revelation, those are general revelations, but the most specific revelation is through his word, the Bible. He's given us his Word, so that we can know Him and His will for my life. Here's the belief statement. Would you read it with me? I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God that guides my beliefs and actions. So, when we come to a belief statement like this, I mean, you all read it. Maybe, maybe you believe it. Maybe you don't believe it. We didn't ask that this morning. But I think sometimes people think that Christian beliefs are just sort of pulled out of thin air. Like, they're just this great big leap of faith, not based on anything. And I want to say that there is always... Christian belief requires faith. That's true. But it is not simply a leap of faith. It's undergirded by reason and evidence that's substantial. And I like how Pastor Kurt said it, probably about half a year he said this in one of our teaching times. He said that we run up the ramp of reason... And then take a leap of faith. (laughs) I love it. So I want to talk a little bit about the reason side of why you would consider believing that the Bible is inspired word of God that guides your belief and action. Because maybe you don't believe that today. Let me give you some reasons why you might consider believing that or coming to that conclusion. So let's talk about some evidence. The first one I'd like to just quickly briefly talk about is history and and archaeology. So when the Bible is written, it tells a lot about cities and countries and, and periods of time in history and nations that rise and fall and, and uh, cities that are built and demolished and all sorts of different things. Well, a couple hundred years ago when archaeology was in its infancy, like it was a very new science, when it was just starting out, it was easy for archaeologists to poke holes in the Bible because they'd be, they would say, well... You know what? It talks about this city existing in this location and nobody's found it yet. And so it was easy back then for people to say, Oh, look at that. Well, maybe the Bible's not that reliable after all. But what has happened in the last couple hundred years would be very should be very encouraging to people who are followers of Jesus and who believe that the Bible is inspired Word of God. Because City after city, location after location, have slowly been found. As archaeology has grown as a science, they've found many of these things. I want to give you two examples that I know of that um, were sort of missing pieces that were found. First was the people, the Hittites. Now, the Hittites were a people group that attacked the Israelites in the land of Canaan or the land of Israel. And uh, for many years, people said, there's no record that these people ever existed. And so that was sort of like poking a hole in the Bible, saying, look, you talk about these people that it sounds like they were just made up. And so that would have been a thing people would have used to attack the Bible until about 1900, when evidence for the Hittites was discovered. And archaeologists and historians had to adjust and say, oh, I guess the Bible was right this people group that we thought didn't exist actually existed. Now you say that's a 100-year-old example. That's a long time ago. Uh, is there anything more recent? Well, it's more recent for me, but if you're really young, this will still sound like ancient history. The 1990s, okay? So, yeah, it, it was a time. I lived through it. It was black and white everything. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyhow, in the 1990s, there's a couple of authors that wrote a book, and they were, again, trying to poke holes in the Bible, and what they wrote was that... The kingdom of David and the follow-up kingdom of his son Solomon, there's no evidence of it. There's no evidence that David and Solomon's kingdoms ever existed. And so that was there. they wrote this extensive book and said, look at this, the Bible's just making these things up out of thin air. And after that book was written, unfortunately, it was only a, unfortunately for the authors, <laughs> the Bible never became, that book never became very popular because soon after that, the discovery of artifacts from King David's kingdom was found. And initially there was some debate. Oh, those aren't really from King David's kingdom. Those aren't really from the kingdom of David. But soon it was conclusively proven. And so that book had a very short shelf life because its timing was poor. It came out just before the evidence that debunked it came out. And so, now this isn't, this isn't I wouldn't say this is enough proof just because a, a book that has history in it, which the Bible does, tends to be accurate about the history. It doesn't mean necessarily it's the words of God. It just means it's an ast- accurate history book. But I do think it puts it on another level than other holy books which have been written, which have made up completely cities and nations and geographical locations, that there's been no evidence found for any of it. And there are holy books, I'm not gonna name names because I'm not here to offend anyone today, but there are other holy books that actually have that in their DNA, where it's like, they talk about whole networks of cities that existed here and there, and no one has ever found any evidence of any of those things. And so I think that that puts the Bible on a different level. The archeology span and the history of the Bible has been, again, over time, as we look back, we're finding out, oh, What the Bible said was right, and nobody knew until now how right it was. So history and archaeology of the Bible, then the consistency of the Bible. We learned today in the quiz, if you didn't know it before, 40 writers approximately, over 1,500 years approximately, to write the 66 books that you'd find in the modern Bible. And uh, that's quite a deal. Um, I don't know if when you get together with your family over Christmas you are going to agree on everything you talk about. But these 40 authors in totally different time spans, who came from totally different backgrounds and totally different walks of life, they agree in their writings over some of the most controversial things that people can disagree about. I mean, it's amazing the consistency in the Bible. So you're reading, you're crossing, so you can be reading the Bible and reading something that was written 1,500 years before something else was written and find that those things agree, that those authors agree. There's incredible agreement in the Bible. The other thing that's incredibly consistent in the Bible um, is the consistency of the texts. So you say, well, that book was written a long time ago. Like, How do we know that our copies that we have today are consistent with the copies that, or the original things that were written back then? Well, there's been lots of evidence to point to the consisten- consistency of the Bible in this regard. Lots of ancient documents that we trust as reliable today, right? I think of like uh, the, the autobiography Julius Caesar wrote about himself. People read it and say, oh, I guess that's what happened. One guy wrote it, and he wrote it about himself. And I, if you write your own autobiography, you might embellish or make yourself out to be a better guy than you really were but we still pretty much take it at face value that what he wrote by himself way back in that time is accurate, and we, and we, we go with that. Uh, there's other ones that have much better substantial um, evidence around it than Julius Caesar's work. Like take Homer's The Iliad. That's like... It's sort of like the cream of the crop of ancient manuscripts, basically. I think there's 500 copies of ancient manuscripts. Now, the first one wasn't written for 500 years after the original, but still, there's, there's a lot of... When you've got a lot of different manuscripts, what it helps you to do is triangulate what the original one said, right? So if uh, we wrote an account of Thanksgiving 2020 and all of us wrote accounts, it would weed out the lies. So if everyone said, yesterday was a nice sunny day, but there was two accounts that said there was a blizzard. Over time, when people collected all those manuscripts, they'd say, these two outliers who said it was a blizzard must be wrong because everyone else said it was a nice sunny day, right? So that's how it works with manuscripts. The more manuscripts you have, the more you fact-check all the manuscripts and you come up with a a really accurate copy. And so um, Homer's Iliad had 500 manuscripts, which is a lot for an ancient text. How many does the Bible have? About 24,000. So it's, we can be really confident that what was originally written has been preserved and that what we read today is, is, is a very accurate copy of what was the original. I think it's a bit of a miracle that that was all preserved. One of the neat miracle stories, I think, along the way, or neat maybe uh, evidence stories along the way was the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it was found... Um, and it, it was found hundreds of years after these were written in these caves in the air of Qumran or whatever, however you say it. Um, a shepherd boy found these scrolls in jars and, and all these manuscripts were pulled out, written hundreds of years ago, and then they compared them to the current manuscripts that they had. And they were things like Old Testament books like the book of Isaiah and a whole bunch of other things. And they pulled it out and go, went, wow, these things match. Hundreds of years later. So some people think, when it comes to the Bible, it was just sort of like, you know, the telephone game where I say something and then you say it in another ear, another ear, and then ten years down the road is a totally different message. The remarkable thing about the Bible is the consistency of what's written later with what was written in the former days. Hundreds of years later, exactly, uh, you know, they could come back and say, these are the same. This is amazing. All right. The third one I would say is prophecies, the evidence of prophecies. Um, There's a few different ways in which this is a big deal. I mentioned that Isaiah uh, was one of the books in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, If you had read Isaiah, I think it's 53. I hope I'm not wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That whole passage, if you read it today, if I gave it to you and you knew nothing about the Bible but you just were getting familiar with coming to church, and, I, and you read that passage, you'd probably say, oh yeah, I, I know what the answer to this, I know who they're describing, it's describing Jesus. And then I would have to tell you that that was written before Jesus was born. That's what prophecy is. Well, it's not the only thing it is, but it's, it's a foretelling, it can be a foretelling of the future. So, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, in the book of Isaiah is this telling of Jesus but it just seems like something out of time because you're like well this seems like it's, spell- it's telling very clearly who Jesus was and what he did. How could this be possible? Well, the Bible has many examples of that. In fact, there's 300 some prophecies about Jesus written in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled and many authors have written about the odds of that that they're astronomical. Like you, it wasn't just that there's enough the odds of that are not in the population of the world, there's not enough within the population of the world to actually fulfill the odds of fulfilling all those prophecies. Because some of them are very detailed. You have things of where he was born, his ancestry, uh, how he would die specifically, um, and uh, even like, you know, how his, what would happen to his clothes that were stripped off him when he was killed and where he was buried. And it just... But 300 of these different prophecies that describe his life. To fulfill that, one author had said it would take thousands and thousands of worlds, of earths, with billions and billions of people in them, to finally get the kind of odds you'd need for someone to f- fulfill that prophecy once, those, all those prophecies once. So it's really... Quite remarkable, uh, the role of prophecy. And there's lots of other prophecies about cities that have, were destroyed. Two that come to mind that were quite remarkably accurate in how they described them were the city of Tyre, how it was destroyed, and the city of Babylon, how it was destroyed and not rebuilt. And so those are, again, prophecies. Uh, and then Daniel, the book of Daniel's got some interesting prophecies. And our pastor Chris, one of our pastors, Chris Drinnan, uh, took us through that about half a year ago, just walking through how. If you had read the book of Daniel, you would have thought it was telling in, it was, it was looking back to say, here are the different empires of the world. You know, Babylon and Persia and Rome, etc. Except for it was written before those empires came to be. Detailing these empires yet to come. Remarkable stuff in the Bible. And then here's the fourth one. So we've got history and archaeology, consistency within the, the text. The prophecies of Scripture. And the last one is the changed lives that result from Scripture. That re- the changed lives reveal the power of the Bible. Let me read you Matthew 7 24. Therefore, ev- everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. So when people read the Bible, and not just read it, but actually Act on what it says there, act it out, so many incredible things have happened. People's personal lives have changed. Lots of people will go back to say, uh, you know, these are the differences that reading the Bible and engaging with it has made in my life. Very substantial differences. But even in the society, it's happened, right? You can think of there's been a whole massive education movement that's come out of the Bible. Uh, In fact, even today, there's people who are translating the Bible into languages of illiterate tribes across the world. And it usually is the beginning of the path for them to grow in literacy and, to, and development and civilization. Um, but there's been huge movements in education that have come out of the Bible. There's been huge um, movements in health, like hospitals and building hospitals. Uh, how many hospitals have saint something on the front of them? Uh, It's because they came out of people who had faith rooted in the teachings of the Bible. Um, The women's suffrage movement had had great influences from people who read what the Bible said and then walked out the details of it. Uh, The ending of slavery, especially my favorite one is William Wilberforce, the whole story. If you ever can find the movie Amazing Grace, it's a few years old now. But it's a really cool movie where it just chronicles how here was a man of faith who Faced an enormous resistant, resistance in the British Parliament to the abolition of slavery, but he persevered and persevered and persevered, and eventually they won the day. And the British Empire ended slavery much sooner than the American uh, than the Americas did, um, because of the efforts of people who saw what was in the book and put it into practice, changed lives and changed societies. So the Bible's not just a good book. Some people say, oh, it's the good book. But it's a guidebook. It gives direction for people's lives and for society as well. So that's all I'm going to do to build the ramp of reason for you. Now let's talk about the leap of faith. Let's talk about the leap of faith. The Bible says a lot about itself. And so you read in the Bible just sort of more about what the Bible is. And one of the things you find out is that as we read in our key verse, right? All Scripture is God-breathed. So God infused himself into the Scriptures. It's the same kind of expression that was used in the creation accounts in Genesis where it says God breathed into man. Took him from being just dust to being a living person. That God has breathed into uh, Scripture, And Hebrews 4.12 gives us, the opening line of Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, for the word of God is alive and active. This is a living book. God has breathed, his his, he's breathed into it. Another way of saying it is it's inspired by God. It's inspired by God. This is what 2 Peter 1.21 says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you have human expression, but it's, but it's God inspiring them to write what they wrote. So I've tried to think about it in my mind, what would it be like if, if I was one of those writers? Obviously I wasn't, but if I was, what would it be like? Well, if it, or if you were one of those writers? So how would it be like to be inspired by God to write the Bible? Well, it seems like, from what we read as we read the Bible, it seems like God didn't sort of erase the, the way of speaking that the person had. right? You can often read parts of the Bible and say, hey, that sounds like Paul or Peter or you know Moses or whatever, who's, who's writing these different accounts. So probably God would have used your vernacular or your way of speaking or writing, yet the ideas... And the, the message would have been from him. Like, that. quite a remarkable thing to think about. Like, what would, you would, can you imagine a writer writing, and, and then after he's written, he's like, that's the way I speak. But these ideas and these principles and these concepts, that's way beyond me. This is God, right? This is ama- what an amazing experience it must have been for them. So it's inspired by God. That, so that's why I say, asked you how many writers of the Bible, and I didn't say how many authors, because the author is God. God's the author, and he used different writers with different writing styles to, to put his word together. So I said the word of God is alive in Hebrews 4.12, but it goes on to say something more. It says that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So unlike the books you would have reviewed in high school, do a book review. And what is a book review? It's a book report is, this is what's in the book. A book review is, I don't like this book. <laughs> or I love it, it's my new favorite, whatever. you know, you re- A review is different. You don't. The thing about the Bible is, it's saying in Hebrews four twelve that you're not here to review the book; it's here to review you. That's remarkably different. Like you give me a book and, and you say it's great; it's the best book ever. Read it, and I read it and I go, eh, not so much. I thought it was sort of lame. You know, I'm just giving it my review. But when I come to the Bible, it's me who's being reviewed. It's the attitudes, as Hebrews twelve. Uh, 4.12 says, it's, uh, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of my heart. And that's very different. It's not just any book. Which This leads us to the next statement. We said it was inspired by God, but it's also authoritative for life. It's authoritative for life. The Bible has authority. It commands obedience. Psalm 119 says it this way, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. And then it says, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. You know, when you, we read the Ten Commandments earlier, uh, Cam and Carrie showed them, they don't come off as suggestions, do they? They don't come off like the Ten Suggestions, like, hey, you might want to not murder you might want to only have God as number one, or you might want to not lie. No, it's you shall not. Well, that's the old English version. It's commands. There's an assumption of authoritativeness, and it's, the assumption's based on this. The Bible says that God is God, and if God is God and you're not God, then there's an authority structure that exists. Now, you can disregard it. You have a free will. God's given you that. I would not advise you to disregard it, but I advise you to embrace it because it's the best thing for your life. But the Bible is authoritative for life. The Bible also is, it doesn't fail, I'm going to say it this way, it doesn't fail to accomplish its purposes. Some people use the word infallible and it can be used a few different ways I've found. But I'm going to say it doesn't fail to accomplish its purposes. Romans 12, too, is, is one verse that talks about that. Don't, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you're renewing your mind, now what is that? How do you make your mind new? Well, in your mind, there are things you believe. Some of them are true, Some of them are false. And through life experience, we often find out the things that are false. But not always. In fact, some of the things that we believe that are lies that aren't true, they linger with us for decades. And sometimes for our whole lives. They never get challenged. And so we live out of a false construct in our head. And it doesn't make life work for us. In fact, it... Makes it much harder. And so when in 2nd, um, our theme verse basically, in where it says the Word of God is useful, and it's got a couple really nice ones, right? Training and teaching. You say, oh, that sounds good. But it also says correction and rebuking. <laughs> when you read the Bible, sometimes it's telling you the truth that counteracts a lie that you already believe. And so if you. Take the, the lie that you've believed and replace it with the truth that you're receiving from the Bible. That's renewing your mind, making your mind new. And it's quite a process. It can be quite a process. Sometimes those, those lies are so deep-seated within us, we need to repeat again and again to ourselves, read it again, understand it again, that this is what God says is true about me. This is what God says is true about Him. This is what God says is true about the world. This is what God says about my future or my past or, or my sin or my, my failings. This is what God says. And that's renewing your mind. It's taking those old thoughts captive and saying, no, 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 no. You're not going to dominate. You're not going to dictate. And receiving what God says about us and say, I'm going to embrace this and I'm going to repeat this and I'm going to let this soak deep into me. And there's a promise that comes with it. Incredible promise about the effectiveness of God's will. When you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, as it says in Romans 12, 2, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. So if you want to know what God's will is, if you want to know more about that, you'll be able to do that and know that better as your mind is renewed. Here's the final thing. I guess I'll sum up the other three real quick. So it's inspired by God. It's authoritative for life. It doesn't fail to accomplish its purposes. But finally, it helps you meet Jesus. The Bible helps you meet Jesus. You know, Jesus is the interpretive key to the whole book. It's like he's the decoder for the Bible. How many of you have ever watched a movie where there was such a twist at the end that it changed how you saw the entire movie. You had to watch the movie again because you suddenly go, oh, now I want to go back and see how that worked out. Have you ever watched a movie with a twist at the end, right? If you watch Sixth Sense or Book of Eli, there's a few that I've watched. I'm not recommending them, by the way. Not family-friendly. But you get to this certain point in the story and you go, oh, what a reveal. And then you go backwards and go, oh, 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 oh. That changes everything. Then you watch that movie again and you go, I know the reveal, and then you go, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, Darth Vader is his father? Wow! <laughs> That's what Jesus is in the Bible. That's what Jesus is in the Bible. You have this huge, the bigger part of the Bible, 39 books, and it's, it's much bigger, is the Old Testament, written before Jesus is born, but then when Jesus was arri- arrives, he himself says, uh, he himself takes his disciples through a process of teaching them how the Old Testament was revealing him the whole way. In fact, there's two guys he runs into on the Emmaus Road. It's, that's a, they're walking, and it was after Jesus had been crucified, and they didn't know he'd risen from the dead. So Jesus, risen from the dead, comes along. They don't know it's him. He's chatting with them, and through the process of spending time with them, He explains to them how, where he was revealed in all the whole Old Testament. I mean, that would be the one Bible class we all wish we could have been in. (laughs) Jesus revealing every single place where he showed up in the Old Testament. Credible. The point of the Bible is not just for you to get Bible knowledge or, or you know, be as smart as what was that something pelican, soaring pelican, not just to be really understanding the trivia of the Bible. The goal of the Bible is to meet Jesus and be transformed in meeting Jesus, and so that's what it does. It helps us to meet Jesus. And John, one of Jesus most, or his closest, one of his closest disciples, he wrote this. John 20, 30, 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these, but these, the ones that are recorded, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is all written so that you can come to trust in Jesus. So maybe before that, you trust in yourself, you trust in others that are very... Likely to fail you or have a high probability of doing that. You come to believe in Jesus. He's the only, really, he's the only one you can believe in for your life now and for your life to come for eternity. And then it says that by believing, you may have life in his name. That was God's intention for us, that we'd have life, have it to the full. Now and forever. And that's the goal of the Bible, is to encounter Jesus. Jesus. I like how in John 1, 1, they call Jesus the Word. So Jesus is the living Word. And in the God-breathed living Word of the text, we meet the living Word, Jesus. What are the outcomes of engaging the Bible? There's two that I want to talk about. Now, if you have been with us in this series, you know I've talked about reverse engineering your faith. So So you start with finding out there are some things the Bible describes as outcomes of walking with God and you're not seeing them show up like they should in your life. So that might be disappointing. So the the most common measurement we're using is the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the outcome or the fruit of the Spirit of God being active in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I usually miss one. Anyhow, there's a bunch. And so so we've had people do an online assessment or even go to the, where they self assess themselves and say, Are these things showing up in my life? Or even ask other people to do an assessment. I asked one of my coworkers, my wife, and my teenage son to each do an assessment Are you seeing these virtues showing up in my life? And they had different results. In some areas, it was like, Yeah, this is strong in your life. In others, areas it was like, Work needed here. <laughs> So then, what do you do with that? How do you reverse engineer from that? Well, we've been trying to tell you every, every now and again wh- how these things go backwards. Let me tell you two. Two biggies that come out of engaging the Bible. Two biggies. Um, if you believe the Bible is the word of God and has the right to sort of dictate your life and practice um, and you're engaging the Bible, two things that'll come out of it. First one's humility, right? If God is God, then you're not God. And the Bible is going to tell you that again and again and again. So humility will be something that you'll, you'll gain from your interaction with the Bible. So, as, again, approaching the Bible correctly, not that you're reading it, but that it's reading you. Not that you're measuring it or reviewing it. It's measuring and reviewing you. It'll bring a humility to your life. If you engage the Bible regularly and are reminded that you're not the center of the world and it's not all about you, actually the center of all things is God. And uh, that's one of the outcomes. If you lack humility, read the Bible, engage with the Bible. Here's the other big one, self-control. If you lack self-control, if you have find it very hard in your life to resist certain temptations in your life, One of the key helps in that area is engagement with the Word of God. And the example that I will use, and if you're in a life group, you'll run into this when you do your study together, is the example of how Jesus resisted temptation. We're told in Scripture that Jesus was tempted just like you and I were, but didn't sin. And then we read the story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert, and he was tempted by pleasure and pride and power, the same kind of stuff you and I are tempted by, and he resisted them. How did he win? Well, he kept responding by saying, it is written. It is written. So when the temptation came, he fought the temptation with the Bible. So you sort of see how Jesus held the Bible itself in high regard, and he used it as a spiritual weapon in his own battle. You think, well, Jesus, he wouldn't need to use the Bible in a battle, but he did. He did. He kept saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, quoting the Old Testament and winning the battle against temptation. And that's the same for our lives, too. So, let's say you find out there's a virtue missing in your life. And you can trace it back to, well, this virtue comes out of these beliefs and these practices. Well, so I've done that. I've done the assessment, found out some weak areas in my life, grab my belief book, start marking the chapters where I can grow the most, and read those. I'm going to read the whole thing. But I'm really going to read those because you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for a weapon to use in a spiritual battle just like Jesus had. I'm looking for like a line or a verse or something that will stand out to me that I can repeat to myself when I'm in the thick of temptation. When I'm in the, at the heat of the battle, I want to be armed. And that's what our theme verse says it'll do. This, the scriptures are God-breathed. They're useful for training, teaching, rebuking, correcting. So that the man of God, the woman of God, the young boy who follows God, the young girl who follows God can be thoroughly equipped. Do you want to be equipped? Do you want to be armed? You've got to have the word of God. And that's what I'm looking for. I am Looking This year for me, this bleed journey for me, is adding to my equipping, adding to my armament. I want to discover the weapons that Scripture gives me to fight spiritual battles. I have some. I've experienced how Scripture has helped me in some of my temptations, some of my battles, and it's helped renew my mind, so some temptations have become diminished in my life. They don't, they're not as strong a pull anymore because of the Word of God but there's there's work to be done believe me i read the reviews there's work to be done but i'm going to get armed because i want to be equipped and i think and god wants to equip you too so let's let's go for it together so if you believe the words of the of the bible are words from god there's a few other things that come with that if i say i believe the words of the bible are words from god then you're probably also going to believe the Bible is relevant to address the needs of your life in this time. There's a reason why the Bible has been the top-selling book for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's the top-selling book of all time, right? It's why Gutenberg invented the printing press to print the Bible, right? And it's the top seller. So if you read the New York Times uh, you know, bestseller list, it doesn't list the Bible on there because how boring would it be for it to be at the top of the list forever, right? If you're in the New York Times, you're saying, well, we want to have the list change up, and it's always the Bible. Everybody keeps buying the Bible. Everybody wants the Bible. That's been the case. Why? Because it's always relevant. I don't know if Homer's Iliad is that relevant. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if reading uh, the autobiography of Julius Caesar is still relevant. But the Bible is always relevant in every generation, It'll be relevant in 20 years, and in 50 years, and in 100 years. If I'm driving in my hover car someday, it'll be relevant. It will always be relevant. And so that's one of the realities of the Bible. If it's from God, it's always going to be relevant. It's never going to be stale dated. And also, if if the words of the Bible are words from God, then I believe the Bible has decisive authority over what I say and do. So there's an obligation for me. To study the Bible, to understand God's will for my life, because it has authority over what I say and do. And the final one is if I believe the words of the Bible are words from God, then I believe the Bible is absolutely true in matters of faith and morals, even when I don't like what it says. You know what I want to do? I want to do what everyone wants to do remake God in my image. But that isn't who God is. So every time I read a part of the Bible and it confronts me where I'm at, it confronts me in what I believe, it confronts me in what I want to do, which is make the whole world about me. Because that's sin, indwelling sin, that we're born with, that natural tendency that comes with the fall of Adam and that we all inherited. Every time I encounter that, when every time Scripture does correct me or does rebuke me, It's for my good. It's for the good of others as well. And I don't always like it. (laughs) It's just like eating your vegetables. Great outcome. Don't always want the process. But oh, is it good when you embrace it? Oh, is it good when you embrace that God is right and I'm not? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. You want straight paths? (laughs) Or do you want to go the long route through life? (laughs) Submit to him. Don't lean on your own understanding. Let me close with this. Yesterday we had beautiful weather. Did you all get, how, how many of you got outside yesterday? You say, I got outside, at least for a moment. It was just beautiful out there. Right? And if you were stuck inside, I'm sorry, but it, I looked at the forecast and saw the weather for, uh, forecast for yesterday and then the rest of the week and I thought, I have to take advantage of this last day. Now, you know what? It's funny. When I was a kid, that would just mean play soccer outside or have a good time outside. But now I'm an adult with responsibilities and I'm a homeowner. So it means, what did I neglect doing all summer long that now I must do in this one day? And the one thing I knew I had to get done was I had to get a tube of Jack Black and get up on my roof and caulk around where my lower roof meets the siding of the upper roof area, right? So I, I saw, I had seen it last summer, I should have done it last summer. And I realized now I really had to do it. So I went and got a tube of Jack Black, got it on I made three classic mistakes. One, I only bought one tube. That was a mistake. So two-thirds of the job is done now, unfortunately. Only two-thirds. The second mistake I made was I cut too big of a bead. Like I cut the I cut the nozzle and I cut it too big. <sighs> so then I'm smearing this stuff all over the place when I could have had a nicer line and I'm like, oh. And the biggest mistake I made was I was such in I was in such a rush to get this thing done. I wanted to get it done because I had a lot of things I wanted to do yesterday. Is I could have went looking for a glove somewhere to put on, but I thought, you know what? I'll just get a cup of water, some paper towel, and I'll just do it with my finger. I'll do the with my finger, and you know that works a little bit better with the, the caulk you put in your shower than it does with Jack Black. That's what I found out. So I'm up there and I'm like putting on too much caulk, and then I'm trying to get it off my finger, and I'm wiping it on paper towel, and the wind's blowing the towel, and I'm getting anyhow. I'm getting this stuff all over the place, and uh, you know. I'm about halfway through the job and I I come around this way and then I come by basically our bedroom window is there and suddenly it creaks open like this and there's my wife and she says, how's it going? (laughs) And then she looked at my hands which are black and she's like, why aren't you wearing a glove? And you know, I had been thinking the same thing just moments before (laughs) thinking like, Maybe I'm an idiot for not slowing down and getting a glove before I did this job, but it was just sort of still up in the air until my wife confirmed it that I was an idiot. Actually, <laughs> she didn't say it that way; she was very nice. But why didn't you get a glove? And I was like, guess I was in a rush. I was—I wanted to get it done quickly, and I thought I could get it done qu- without making a mess. And so my hands are just covered with this stuff. In fact, when I was when I got two thirds of the when I was done the tube and not quite done the job, which is still yet to be done a little bit. I got down from the roof, and I went to go back in the house, and I realized I didn't have one clean finger I could use to slide open the sliding door. I was, all of them had blackjack on them. And I thought, oh, this is bad. And so my wife graciously opened the door for me, and I said, okay, I'm going to go wash my hands. So I go into the bathroom, soap and water, and I start washing my hands, and it's like, this is not coming off. And, I, and so I got like a like I've got a little foot scraper that you know the one for the shower. I got that one on my hands, and I'm like, what am I going to do? I have to take this skin off if I'm going to get this stuff off. So I'm there, washing and washing and washing and washing, and it hits me. How long would it take me to get the glove? This much time. How much time is this taking me? It's enormous. And it's not going away. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up with black hands and preach at church. And I thought, this is terrible. So I, I call out to my wife and say, honey, would you Google how to get Jack Black off your hands? <laughs> so she Googles, finds all these different home remedies, and shows up with canola oil. And uh, so anyhow, I got this cooking oil all over my hands, and I'm rubbing it, and it actually worked. That's why my hands are clean today, because of cooking oil. But it still took an enormous amount of time. Now, if my grandpa had seen what I did, he would have had a few sayings for me. Have you heard these ones? More haste, less less speed, right? Or whatever. That's the one he would say. More haste, less speed, right? In other words, you rush to get it done, and that's why now you're punished with it taking forever. And uh, the other one he would say, and this was an old one. I'm not sure if, how many would know this one, but an ounce of prevention is worth... Uh, Pound of cure. Some of you guys know it, right? An ounce of prevention. If you do just a little bit on the front end, you don't have to pay so big on the back end. Wonderful. All those things were ringing in my ears as I'm washing and washing and washing. Why am I telling you that? Because I think it's about the Bible. I think why we don't read the Bible, even if you're a Christian, why we don't read the Bible as much as we don't read the Bible is because of this reason. We live in a hurry-up culture. We live in a time of haste. And um, we struggle to believe what our key verse actually says. It says that the Bible is useful for teaching, training, correcting, rebuking, so that the person of God will be fully equipped. I think we struggle to believe that. And that's why I think we read the Bible little. Because does it really feel useful to you when you sit down to read the Bible? Or even when you think about maybe reading the Bible, does it really feel like it would be useful, like the Bible says it is? I think there's a belief disconnect inside of us, and it's because of our hurry-up culture that causes us to not engage the Word of God because we don't really think it's useful. It's like a nice bonus. If you get all your work done, then maybe you can read the Bible, and whoever gets all their work done, I don't. So there's a belief disconnect. And this week, I was, re- I was looking on social media, and some of you guys had posted on social media that... October the 6th is the anniversary of the death of William Tyndale. Does anyone know why he was burned at the stake? Translating the Bible into English. So Henry VIII, I think it was, had him burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And as he was dying, he prayed, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, I've read some of the story of William Tyndale. I find it fascinating. It, it, it's an incredible adventure. Here's a guy going against the law. At the time, it was thought that the common person can't have the Bible in their hands. They won't understand it. They'll mess it up. You've got to have professionals. You've got to have priests or, or leaders of churches who have enormous educations who will explain to the common man what the Bible was. And William Tyndale fought against that. In fact, there's a story where um, a whole bunch of sort of clergy or leaders in the church came to visit him at a house. And as he was engaging them, he was appalled at how little they knew the Bible. And in the discussion, I think it was with a particular, maybe a leader of the group, maybe a bishop or something like that, William Tyndale said in a bit of a hot mood, he said, if God allows me to live long enough to do What I think he's called me to do, by the time I am done, the plowboy will know more of the Bible than you do. And he gave his life for that. And he did translate the Bible into English and then was killed for it. In William Tyndale's generation, the problem was access to the Bible. That's not our problem. We have Bibles galore. In fact, many of you probably have more than one in your household, maybe four or five even. So it's not an access problem; it's an appetite problem. And I think our hurry-up culture is what's really taking us out in this area: is that we are not reading the Bible because we don't believe our key verse of today. We don't believe it's useful. We don't believe it's going to be productive but I think it's just like me with the Jack Black. I didn't think getting a glove was going to be the fastest way to get the job done, but then I paid for it on the back end. And that's what people are experiencing in their lives spiritually. They're not engaged with the Bible. You know what Dwight L. Moody said? He said, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. And I think so many people have experienced that sort of Jack Black experience where they're like... What have I done? I should have invested in my life in reading the Word of God that would empower me, that would equip me, that would arm me so that I went into spiritual battle, I'd win instead of lose, so that I'd end up with clean hands instead of covered in goop. So I want to challenge you. I I hope you feel that challenge. I know all of us in this culture are tempted to make the Bible a bonus item if we get everything done. But I think it really is the big rock that you have to get in first before you add all the other little rocks. So just two things. Read the Bible and reread the parts of it that you discover are powerful to change your thinking in the areas where you have the greatest area uh, room to grow. Read there. Read there. That's This is what this whole series, this is whole, what this transformational journey is about. For you to become equipped, as the Bible says you can be. And read it enough that you retain it. Wouldn't it be great to be like Jesus in the moment and be able to say... Sorry, I've got something for this. That temptation used to be powerful in my life. I had no defense against it. There was no way I ever won. I fell and fell and fell and fell again. But it's weak sauce now because I've got this from the word of God. It is written. And temptation falls. And sin is defeated. And God is glorified. And people are equipped. And the church is the church. And the kingdom expands. Would you stand with me? Lord, we come before you in in confession today. We come before you in confession. We've had access to the word of God. We didn't live in William Tyndale's scenario. We have access galore and I think maybe our familiarity has bred contempt. or just We don't honor it. Maybe even we honor it. We think the Bible is a great thing, but there just isn't the engagement that's meant to transform us. And so we just appeal to you. First, we're sorry, Lord. I don't know how many are joining me in this moment of confession, but I'm sorry for the ways in some ways that I've disbelieved the potency of the Word of God. And Lord, I pray for a brand new affection. I think of the psalmists, how they write about the words of God are so good in different ways, and they just kept saying that again and again and again in every different way they could say it, however poetic way they could say it, because they couldn't get enough of saying how precious and how powerful and how important your word is in our lives. So Lord, I, I confess my unbelief, and I say, help me Help me believe. I pray for belief that would see it soak much deeper, that it wouldn't just be mental ascent. It would be heartfelt. It would be transformative. There would be actions that flow out of that. And my prayer for all of us is that we'd be able to read and retain the scripture so that we become fully equipped. We want to be able to use the Word of God like Jesus did. So, would you lead us in that journey? I pray for ones who are just sort of getting around this concept in their minds right now. I pray you'd lead them to that understanding of areas where they can grow and then lead them towards the scripture that's powerful and renewing in their mind in that area. I pray that many of us would, at the end of this journey, say, I got armed. I got equipped. Glory to God. So Lord, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your leadership. We thank you for all the things you want to bring into our our lives. And so lead us forward through your word. In the name of Jesus, amen.